Heavenly Father, thank you so much for tonight. We thank you for the opportunity we have to study Romans together. We're grateful for uh, this uh, amazing uh, accomplishment, really, we could say, of the Apostle Paul by the Holy Spirit, um, but, but one that is, um, you, as he says over and over, he, he was prevented from going to Rome, and I think, I think what was um, uh, flooding in his soul was an opportunity to commute, communicate with them, and, and uh, it just shows you're holding him back and storing up all this truth that he laid in such a laid out in such a fantastic way that has been so helpful to all of us. We thank you for uh, your wisdom, your good providence, your care. We thank you for this book. And we pray that you'd help us to study it and to learn uh, well from the things we study and to be greatly encouraged in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so welcome. Uh, so tonight and next Wednesday night, uh, thankfully they gave me two weeks to do Romans. I was uh, dreading just having a week to do Romans, and uh, we have two weeks, which is about as bad. Uh, you really want a lot of time to go through this book. It's awesome. Um, but if you haven't already turned there, go ahead and turn there in your Bibles, and we're going to look at a few preliminary things together. And, um, and before we get started, I want to ask a couple questions just by way of uh, getting you warmed up a little bit uh, to appreciate this, this book of Scripture. I want to ask this question. What is the point of Christianity? What is the point? In other, in other words, what do you think Christianity is about? I'll put it this way. If you had a Hindu friend visiting you from India and grown up as a Hindu, died in the wool Hindu, and he knows nothing of Christianity except Christianity means America, and uh, so he comes and he's in your house and he says, hey, what is the point of Christianity? What is the whole thing about? What would you say? God with us. God with us. He would say, you only have one God with you? In India, we have millions of gods with us. So, God with us. That's the point. That's what Christianity is. Well, that's what it is. That he sent, that he sent his son to be our Savior. That's okay. one of the points. Okay, good. So you would expound Emmanuel, God with us, that God sent his son uh, to be with us, to bring us to himself. Okay, good. Good. Others, what would you say the point of Christianity is? Yeah, Bruce. Revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, good. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Excellent. Good. Anybody else? Christy, about to graduate with your MABC. What would you say? With all that study and learning? Counsel no, I'm just kidding. You would say biblical counseling. <laughs> <laughs> biblical counseling is the point of Christianity. I was gonna say the glory of the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Oh, the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Okay, good. Anybody have uh, something you're burning to say? Well, this, this group is not burning to say anything tonight, are you? Is this how we it's want, been? We want yes. to know the right answer. You want to know the right answer? I don't think you can leave out the word let, Okay, let me ask this then. Here's something maybe is easier for you to answer. Um, I, I mean, that wasn't hard for you and you and a couple of you. That was good. What do you think your average run-of-the-mill evangelical would say Christianity is about? God loves me. God loves me. Okay. God loves me. Is that a true statement? Yes. 
It is, but that's not what Christianity is about. But that's a true statement, yes. It's not what Christianity is about. That is correct. Hmm. I'm all of a sudden very disappointed. Because <laughs> you want God to love you? I do want God to love me, don't you? Yes. Okay. That's interesting. That's a, that's a, that's a crossroads right there. Yeah, Chris. I, I can get saved. I can get saved, okay. Or God loves you and he has a plan for your life. He has a wonderful plan for your life. Wonderful plan for your life. Yeah, where have we heard that before? <laughs> All right, good. Uh, what about if you were to ask here in America, your run-of-the-mill pagan or your run-of-the-mill secularist, what would they say? What would that Hindu find out from a run-of-the-mill secularist? Hey, uh, Joe Scientist or Joe Pagan, what's Christianity about? What, what would they find out then? Intolerance. Huh? Cuss word. It would, oh, a cuss word. Uh, it's just a form of religion. It's a form of religion, okay. Intolerance. Christianity is about intolerance. Yeah, rules. Bunch of rules. Rules, yeah. rules, regulations, yeah. things I can't do, joy-killing, fun-killing uh, fun uh, religious stuff. Um, politicism, uh, political, it's a political <coughs> party. Yes. Uh, evangelical is basically a political party in this country. Yeah. So that's kind of what they'd say. Um, whatever we've heard and whatever we've been taught or grown up believing, we need to understand uh, what Paul says Christianity is about, don't you think? Mm -hmm. And um, there's no better place to find out what Christianity is all about uh, than the book of Romans. I mean, Every book of scripture obviously has, um, speaks to this theme, but, but Romans is a titan among the epistles. It is, it's just got this, uh, this crowning jewel um, prominence in the scripture that highlights all the doctrines so clearly and so, well, divinely woven together, uh, where you can see the story moving from one, uh, from one logical step to another. It's absolutely beautiful. And I want you to look at your handout for a moment, uh, the, the big eight and a half by 11 one. And we'd like to review a couple things here, and then I'll ask you another question. If you look at the themes, uh, and then those outlines of the ones, uh, in, in which Christianity is explained pretty comprehensively there. We can get a sense of what Christianity is about just by looking at those themes. You can see that first table has the themes on the left side. You can just run down that. Um, the subjects, the themes that are most prominent in Romans, uh, you see there's something about Jew versus Gentile or Israel versus the Greeks. You see uh, those are people that people groups that feature in Romans, as you know. Uh, and moving down the list, you can see gospel, law, sin, wrath, righteousness, uh, faith, salvation, flesh and spirit, death and life. Notice, though, in the next, as you, as you see the theme in the next uh, box over, how many times those terms are referenced. And notice the terms that are used more than 50 times. You can see law, sin, Righteousness and faith are used more than 50 times, each of them. What is the repetition of those terms, law, sin, righteousness, and faith? What do those themes tell you about the point of Christianity? With those terms in mind, what, it, what is Christianity about? Loving God, or loving Christ, or loving God and loving one another. 
Okay. You, um, none, of the, none of what you said about love, loving God and loving one another, is um, explicitly in, what did I say? Law, sin, righteousness, and faith. But you made a connection. What was the con- why? Why did you make that connection? Uh, because of what Jesus said. <laughs> I'm just following what Jesus said there, Pastor. I don't know what, what you're trying to get me to say, but I just want to I just want to follow the Savior. When he said, "Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all yeah. thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might, and thy neighbor as you love yourself." Okay, so those two commandments. What do they do? What are they, what is the significance of stating those two commandments? What's important about them? They summarize all the law and the prophets, right? Okay, so we could say what you just summarized, loving God and loving one another, law. That's the law, right? So that's the law. Um, so again, what do those themes tell you? You're saying that, the, that what those themes tell you or the, this issue of law is Christianity is about that command, loving God and loving one another. That's what that's what you're saying, Christy. Um, well, I guess I'm cheating by looking down at the uh, the outlines below. But um, law and sin is condemnation, and right, um, <coughs> righteousness by faith is justification. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're justified by faith in Christ rather than by keeping the law. Okay. All right. Good. Good. Tim, just scratching your ear. Okay. Well, just looking at those terms, it's the problem of sin, the solution of faith. Okay. Problem, sin, solution, faith. Good. Sin defined by law. Sin defined by law. And we have righteousness there, which is the result of our faith. So that's the, the, the working out of our faith. Okay. So all four, it seems to me, those four speak to relationship issues that we have with God and, and how those things are spelled out different ways to look at them. Okay. All right. So, so if we talk about, yeah, that's, that's right. So if we talk about just those four terms, I mean, obviously Romans has a whole lot more here. Um, and, and even, even the terms and these themes that are kind of pulled out and highlighted, um, they have connecting points. Okay. We're, we're ripping these out of their context and just talking about them as thematic elements in Romans. But if you just take those four that are so prominent in Romans, uh, each of those terms used more than 50 times, sin and righteousness, law, faith. The term law points as a matter of necessity to a lawgiver. It points upward to the presence of, a, of an absolute standard that is revealed to us by someone who gave it. It's a, there's a being there, uh, a self-sufficient being that is the standard. He is the lawgiver. The term sin points to a holy judge who is evaluating us according to that absolute standard. And sin is then the transgression or the departure from that law that he gave. Um, The term righteousness points to the character of the lawgiver. Um, The revelation of his character in the law, which is righteous. And then the inflexible impartiality of that judge who is going to judge according to righteousness and who's going to judge according to absolute fairness. Now, you've heard this, the saying before, oh, that's not fair. God is not fair. You, saying that about God makes him not fair. No, God is inherently fair. He is righteous. 
And you, you want him to be fair, but you also want him to be gracious. All the fairness of God is poured out on Christ. Um, all the righteousness of God poured out on Christ. The justice poured out on Christ. And he grants us mercy and grace. But he's going to judge with absolute righteousness, absolute fairness, based on our adherence to that ultimate standard of law or based on our lack of adherence to that absolute standard. So if we take just those three terms, for just I'm separating out faith, just those three terms, law, sin, and righteousness, what does Romans seem to be telling us that Christianity is all about? Debbie? A holy God. Yeah, about a holy God. About a holy God. Anybody else? The unholiness of man, because okay. why would we have sin if we didn't have that? All right, the unholiness of man. So already, just with those terms, we're thinking about, whoa, God is absolutely holy, and woe is me, because I am not. So it presents us, just those terms present us with the, the problem. How can an absolutely holy and just God reconcile me, a guilty sinner, to himself? How can he do that? How can he do that and remain holy and remain just? That is the problem that Romans unpacks for us. That's the problem that's answered by the book of Romans, is how can a holy, absolute, whole, absolutely holy God, how can he reconcile me, a guilty sinner to himself, and still maintain his holiness? How can he do that and still maintain his justice? So that's what we learn here. So just based on those three terms, Christianity, as Debbie said, would seem to be about the holiness of God's being, the perfection of his law, uh, the way his being and his perfections stand above mankind as a perfect standard. They are the bar of absolute justice, and therefore they stand against man in his sinfulness. Okay, So, so far, this sounds like an unsettling message from Romans. And we move from unsettled to absolutely terrified when we learn the implications of law, sin, and righteousness, which are namely those other themes, wrath, flesh, death. Um, we're in trouble. That's what that reveals. So with all this t talk of law, sin, and righteousness, where does the term faith fit in? Because that's another huge theme. What did it say here? 61 times. 61 times that term is used. <clears throat> Where does, where does the term faith fit in when we're thinking about loss and righteousness? Well, I'll just answer. That's the key to Romans. It's the linchpin of this thing we call the gospel. So it's by the Holy Spirit that we find faith. It's, he regenerates us. He activates uh, faith within us. His, his work uh, active within us uh, causes us to be able to believe, enables us to believe. It's by faith we find the forgiveness of sin which is salvation to us, which leads to life in the spirit. That is the gospel, the righteousness of God for salvation to everyone who believes, as it says in uh, Romans 1.16. Now, I want you to take a look at the... Any, any questions on that so far? Pretty straightforward gospel stuff. Okay. So the outlines there, I've given you three outlines just because, you know, when you... I'd suggest this to people... 
uh, when you're maybe studying a passage of scripture, a little paragraph or something like that, you're doing your own Bible study, it's sometimes helpful to uh, write up an outline of what you're studying and try to put things into order or organization. And maybe try this, try to force yourself to do two outlines, different outlines, or maybe outline it three ways. The, the, the different ways you can look at something and see it from different angles really helps you to unpack all the manifold meaning in a text. So um, not trying to force something onto the text, but just try to recognize what's there. And that's what these outlines help you to do. Um, I want you to I want you to notice in the middle there John MacArthur's uh, outline. You know the the D. Edmund Hebert one is from a thematic uh, point of view, the theme of righteousness, which goes from from start to finish in Romans. Um, that's a thematic uh, presentation. You can see Doug Moo down there in evangelical. He has a you know the heart of the gospel, assurance of the gospel, 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 gospel. That's that's, um, that's more of an evangelical, you could say, uh, gospel-oriented uh, outline. John MacArthur's, I've kind of, maybe it's because I was tra trained at a seminary, but I, but I really do like the way that, that works out because it's a, theologically, it's a theological outline that moves logically from step to step to step in the gospel. So you can see how it traces the themes according to a theological emphasis, and that development is from condemnation to justification, from justification to sanctification, sanctification to vindication, and vindication to application. And that's how you can see this moving uh, through uh, Romans. Um, if anybody has a whole lot of extra scripture little tags or whatever, you can give them to these two ladies here. <laughs> that way you don't have to read a whole lot of scripture. Uh, that's not a burden for anybody, is it? All right, good. Um, at the, I'm in the right place, I guess. <laughs> at the, uh, but at the heart of the theological development, even in John MacArthur's outline there, is this term righteousness. And I would submit to you right from the very start that the point of Christianity, what Christianity is really about, is the righteousness of God. And that means most fundamentally that Christianity is not about man, it is about God, okay? That's, that's very, very important. What you said about what evangelical, modern evangelicals today would say, or June said too, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That is not the point of Christianity. The point of Christianity, most fundamentally, is God-centered, okay? So Christianity is about the glory of God. That's what Romans reveals. God does not exist to save mankind, that is not his, his great cosmic role in the sky, is just to save people. He does do that, but that's not his role. His role is to glorify himself, and he does so through salvation. But the preeminent goal is for him to glorify himself, whether Jew or Gentile, whether those under divine wrath who remain under divine wrath, or those who are rescued and delivered from divine wrath, all of mankind exists to bring glory to God. In fact, there's not one molecule that exists for any other purpose. Okay, whether it's a galaxy or a solar system or a microbe, all of it exists to bring glory to God. Okay? Now we're going to turn a few pages in Romans. 
and just see if that's not the case. So I just want to just want you to see, am I overstating this, that this is all about the glory of God, or is that really what Romans teaches? And I can tell you the punchline right now, it's what Roman teaches, but I want to prove it to you because you are an educated bunch that demand the proof, okay? It's good for you. So what we're going to do is walk through Romans, starting in chapter 1, and I have um, 32 scriptures. So don't read slowly, okay? We're going to walk through, and I'm going to call out uh, the scripture, and if you have that scripture, please read it for us in your best, most robust, vibrant preacher voice, okay? Especially you, right? Amen. Nice preacher voice. All right, um, Romans 1, 1 to 6. Paul, servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of God, holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring among the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Okay, good. So Paul here, we see him a servant of Christ Jesus. He's called to be an apostle. Called by whom? Jesus. Okay. Called by Christ. Called by God. He's set apart for the gospel of God. Set apart by whom? God. Which somebody promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture. Who was that? God. Um, I mean, we walk through here and just see God. God. God is the answer. God is the 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 implied subject of all those different verbs. Okay. Uh, Romans 1, 16 to 17. And if you, if you could, when you read, don't look down into your Bible. Look, hold it up like a hymnal, okay? And uh, read out so we can get it on the, on the microphone. We want to hear all your beautiful voices. So. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in, in it the righteousness of God is revealed, revealed from faith, faith to faith. It is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Okay, thank you. That was so clear. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why isn't he ashamed of the gospel? Because it's divine power. It's divine power. It's all about God and his power. And in the gospel, what is revealed? The righteousness of God. It's divine righteousness that we see here. Again, it's all about God. Romans 1, uh, and there's two texts here, 18 and 21. So don't read 18 through 21, just 18 21. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Uh, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Okay, so once again we see this is about the glory of God, and notice that the wrath of God is revealed. Is that something, is that bringing glory to God? Yes. Yes. Wrath, when his wrath is revealed, we see something of him, don't we? We see his justice, his anger. We see things about him that actually, frankly, terrify us. But it's the outbreaking of his holiness toward that which is unholy. It's the wrath of God that's revealed. That is the glory of God. We see over here in verse 21, although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God. 
And get this, they didn't give thanks. Teach that to your kids growing up. Unthankful hearts bring on the wrath of God. That's a big deal to God. Not honoring him as God, not basically uh, turning away to idolatry, creating a false, fictitious God for yourself, or a, a friendly Jesus, whatever it is, that is idolatry, and it makes God angry. Go to uh, Romans 2, and verses 2 through 11. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead to you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Okay, great. Thank you for that um, longer section there. Notice how many things are revealed about God. Judgment of God, wrath of God, uh, storing up uh, for yourself on the day of wrath when God's ju righteous judgment will be revealed. And then you see the impartial nature of God's judgment. All of this is revealing God, revealing God, telling us what he's like, telling us who he is. Now, so far, we skipped over it, but chapter one, uh, from what, uh, I can't remember who read that. It was that uh, Allie? Yeah, Allie read in chapter one. But everything that flowed from there talked about the, basically the, the pagan world, the, the total pagan world. Here in chapter two, in the beginning here, we're hearing about the, the, um, the more moral, ethical pagan world. You know, they, they kind of consider themselves above the hoi polloi and above all the, uh, the low-browed sinners. And they themselves are the philosophers, the, the Stoics, who might hold themselves in high regard. And yet, they practice the same things as everybody else. They just are, are haughty about it. Uh, so <clears throat> then we're going to get into uh, the self-righteous Jew. Uh, and that's in the next section. So who's got uh, Romans 2, 23 to 24? I've got it. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Okay. So um, this, this uh, is just kind of rounding out the section and basically saying these Jews who took pride in their Jewishness, they thought of themselves as higher than not just the lowbrow pagans, but the highbrow pagans too. They thought of themselves as the upper crust of all humanity because they were favored by God with the law and the prophets and the covenants and the promises and everything else. And so they looked down on them. And yet it says here, he goes, he goes uh, through the whole thing and points out Jewish hypocrisy, that they don't actually keep the law that they say, they, uh, they say that uh, defines them as a people. You who boast in the law, you dishonor God by breaking the law. And then get this, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. What are we learning in the Lord's Prayer? Hallowed be thy name. 
God's name, it, that name is, what, is that which stands for all that God is. All of God's attributes are included in that Yahweh. And the name of God is blasphemy. That's a big deal to take his name in vain. It's one of the commandments. Okay? So, Romans uh, 3, 4 to 6. May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if your unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I am speaking in human terms. May it never be, for otherwise, how will God judge the world? Okay, so there we see what is, what is, what is vindicated here, what's on display? The truthfulness of God. That he is absolutely true. And because he's true, let God be true. Everyone else is maybe a liar. Let God be true. And why is he, what, what is the issue in his truthfulness? We can count on his judgment being just. We can count on his righteousness being faithful, n unchanging. So again, it's all about the revelation of God. Romans 3, 19 to 20. This is uh, coming after a, a whole bunch of uh, texts pulled from the Old Testament to condemn the entire humanity. What do we see in Romans 3, 19 to 20? Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Okay, so everyone here remanded under the law, remanded under sin. Every mouth stopped. Nobody smartened off to God because God is holy, he is absolute, he is sovereign. Uh, no one justified in his sight by their works because they cannot work their way into righteousness before God. Once, once they have sinned, once they've transgressed, that whole thing is broken. Humpty Dumpty has fallen off the wall. There's no putting him back together again. And everybody is underneath, underneath God's wrath and in need of his grace. That's the point. Okay, read uh, who's got 321 to 26. Hey. <clears throat> but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all to believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So once again, we see that this whole plan of remanding the entire human race underneath sin and wrath and judgment is in order that God's wisdom and his his uh, his true righteousness, his patience, his forbearance, all of this grace is seen in him. So we find again that this is, all, even our salvation is all about him. It's all about glorifying him. So this whole section from Romans 1.18 to 3.20, it shows that Jew and Gentile, all of us are alike under sin and wrath, 
And the focus, yet the focus is all on God. It's on his righteousness. It's on his wrath, which glorifies him. And then when Paul gets to the basis for the gospel, which is uh, that satisfaction of God's anger toward us uh, by the blood of Jesus Christ, that's the basis for God justifying us guilty sinners. That also shows the righteousness of God. It shows the wisdom of God. It shows the amazing intellect of God that he can solve. He can untie. He can basically cut the Gordian knot, right? How can God be just and justify a sinner who's in deserving of judgment and still maintain his justice? Oh, his wrath was satisfied, fully satisfied in Jesus Christ propitiated in Christ. And now we see this revelation of Jesus Christ coming full into full focus. And we say, oh, it's all about his wisdom. It's all about his amazing intellect. It's all about his glory. That's what this is about. Okay. Let's look at the next section. Uh, chapters four and following, for, uh, Paul is going to get into the Old Testament, talk about Abraham, talk about David. And he's basically making the case that, look, Jews, um, yeah, I know you tried to find righteousness in the law and try to try to work this out on your own effort, even though you can't do that. Um, even Abraham didn't do that. Abraham did not was not called righteous before God on the basis of his law keeping. Rather, it was on the basis of his believing. It was on the basis of faith. He trusted. Okay, so let's look at Romans four, five to eight. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. I should have had you start at verse 3. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. It was counted or reckoned to him as righteousness. You could use the word imputed, imputed to him as righteousness. Um, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as is due. I mean, who goes to work? And when you get a paycheck from your boss, you say, oh, thank you for this really wonderful gift. No, you say, about time. Hey, wait a minute. You forgot a decimal. You moved the decimal in the wrong place. I worked a lot more hours than that. Um, because you know that's your wage. That's what you earn. So if you work, your wage is not counted as a gift, but as your due. But to the one who doesn't work but believes, faith counted as righteousness. And David also speaks of that blessing. Again, um, God is glorified in here because he is the one who forgives sin. He's the one who holds wrath over the guilty sinner, which causes us to honor him. And he also removes wrath. He removes that, uh, that, that cause for fear from us, which is, again, causing us to honor and worship him. It's all about God. It's all about his glory. Go to, go to the next uh, one, Romans 4, 17 to 21. As it is written... I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told. So shall it be, or shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was a good as dead 
since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is the essence of faith, being fully convinced that God is able to do exactly as he's promised, no matter how impossible it seems. Like a hundred-year-old man and woman having a baby. So here, he, here it says here, this is, this is the glory of God again in the gospel. This is the glory of God that is made manifest by our believing when we see we we're giving glory to God who gives life to the dead. That's incredible power. And he calls into existence things that do not exist. Like, oh yeah, like when he called the world into being. So it, again, the, the salvation of every single sinner, the, the fulfillment of every promise, the, the bringing life from the dead, this brings glory to God. It's all about God's glory. Romans 5.8, another pointing to the glory of God. But God shows his love for us and that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. What's on display there? The love of God. The love of God is on display. Okay, Romans 6, 11 to 14. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Okay, here we're talking about the implications of the gospel on someone who is truly a Christian. They're, they are no longer enslaved to a, a death-resulting sin, but rather they are enslaved to a new master. This God who gives life from the dead and actually produces works in them that lead to life. Why is that important? Because it demonstrates the transforming power, again, of whom? Of God. Of God, in a very real way. So it's one thing to profess, I have been rescued from divine wrath. It's another thing to demonstrate a power that shows that kind of uh, rescue from death and wrath and sin. Okay? Romans 6, 20 to 23. <clears throat> you were slaves of sin. You were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to satisfaction and is in eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay, thank you. So what is this revealing about God? What is, this, what is, what is revealed about God? What is he like here? What is he compared to? Using, okay, let me, let me give you a big hint. Using slave language. Master. He is slave master. He's our slave master. And what is this slave master doing with his slaves? He is producing works of eternal life in us. 
works of sanctification, which has ad, have at it their end eternal life. It's a free gift of God, and he's working it out through us and in us. What does that say about the character of the slave master? Kindness, grace, power, right? Resource, never-ending supply. Go to Romans 7, 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Okay, once again, bearing fruit for God. If we bear fruit for God, what does that give glory to? It gives glory to the, the, the one who has the power, who energizes all that fruit. He's, we're bringing glory to him. This is all about his glory. Seven, Romans 7.12. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. Okay, once again, going back to God as the lawgiver, he is, if, if the law is holy, and the commandment holy, righteous, and good, what does it say about the one who gave that commandment and that law? Okay, reflects on him. Romans 7, 24 to 25. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There's uh, pointing out our own wretchedness and the fact that he would draw us near is just another demonstration of such compassion, such mercy, such grace on his part and power. Because he has completely changed us. And we are set free uh, from the law of sin, the law of death. And we are now uh, enslaved to God to, um, to serve him. So thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Again, that's the gospel. One more in this little section. I'll make a comment here. Uh, I've been making comments, sorry. Uh, Roman, uh, summary <laughs> comment, Romans 8, 1 to 4. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. So this, uh, the presence of his spirit is what overcomes um, this whole issue of being guilty before the law and still needing to fulfill it, still needing to live by it, still needing to walk by it. How are we going to do that when we are fallen you know, irretrievable in our fallenness. Oh, he gives us his Holy Spirit. He gives us his Holy Spirit. There is no condemnation. And then the law of the spirit of life that set us free also causes us to walk in a way uh, where we actually fulfill the righteous, re righteous requirement of the law that it can be filled, fulfilled in us. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. So we see just kind of reflecting back on some of what we read, Abraham and the way of faith. That predates circumcision. Um, 
the representative headship of Adam, we didn't read that in Romans 5, but there's a representative headship of Adam and a representative headship of Christ, and the two are in contrast. We see the in Romans 6 the enslavement to righteousness rather than sin. We see our bodies no longer used as to, to bring shame to us and disgrace and degradation to us, but now uses instruments of righteousness all leading to eternal life. All of these things point to the grace of God, point to the righteousness of a divine righteousness, a righteousness not our own, but one that comes from God on the basis of faith. And all of that is revealed in our living. All of this is bringing glory to God. Okay, we're going to race through the rest of them. I've, I know you still have some more. Um, so let's go Romans 8. I'm just going to, we're just going to hit them. I'm not going to make any comments, okay? I'm going to try to not make any comments. Romans 8, 12 to 17. Who's got that? I do. So then, brothers... We are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Okay, thank you. Go to Romans. We're going to connect that directly to Romans 8, 28 <clears throat> to 30. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, he also called. And whom he called, those he also justified. And whom he justified, he also glorified. Okay, I got to make this comment. But, but, <laughs> it's, just, it's too good. It's just really good stuff. So, but for those who are, are called by God, who love God, all things work together for their good. And, and look at the, the subject of all those verbs. He foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the, his son's image. Uh, whom he predestined, he called, he justified, he glorified. God is the subject of all those verbs. He is doing that, and he did that from eternity past. Yes. Now, really rock your boat, let's get into Romans 9 and check out God's sovereignty in Romans 9, starting in verse 11 to 13. Yet before the trends were born, or had anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Okay, so God's purpose of election, choosing one twin for one purpose and the other twin for another. Look at verses 14 to 18. What should we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on a human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says of Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed on all this earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Powerful stuff. And then who's got 19 to 23? You will say to me then, why does he stand, or why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? 
But you, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, You have made, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. If you know where you fit in that sentence, <laughs> that should absolutely humble you to the floor. Yeah. I mean, what, what, what can we say to that? Yeah. Skip ahead to Romans 11. 2 through 8. Who's got that? God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says about Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. I, have, I am alone and am left, and they seek my life. But what has God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed a knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect attained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. Look who's in charge of that hardening, giving a spirit of stupor, God. Incredible. Look at uh, 11, uh, Romans 11, 17 to 22. But if some of the branches were broken off and you although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off of their, of their unbelief but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity to those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. There's uh, one more passage in this chapter I wanted to be read, but let me just say this. this. This whole thing, what we've seen in Romans 9, you see it in Romans 10 too, but also Romans 11. Um, this is such a strong assertion of divine sovereignty and divine freedom. His sovereignty and his freedom are restrained and directed only by the relentless and inexorable or unstoppable pursuit by God of his own glory. 
he will pursue his own glory. And that's what you see from Romans 9, 10. That's what you see from Romans 1, 1. But all the way through what we've read is God pursuing his own glory. That is what he is about. That is what Christianity is about. So Paul here, you can see, is not at all timid about pressing God's right to choose, God's right to elect, God's right to decide, to decree, to harden, to show mercy and compassion, whatever he wants to do. He is absolutely free. We call it the potter's freedom. The potter has a right. He has a freedom to do whatever he wants out of that clay. And get this, the clay he's working with, unregenerate humanity. It's all the same unregenerate stuff. And so some he lets go, others he forms into vessels demonstrating his mercy. That should humble every single one of us. But truly, we need to see God is sovereign and we are not. God is completely free, and it's a freedom that's defined by the pursuit of his own glory and purpose. That's what true freedom is, is to glorify God. He is completely free, and our freedom is found when we join those same purposes, right? That's what true freedom is. Not this libertarian American you know, ideal of pursuing whatever sin I want, whatever vice I want. That is not freedom. That's slavery, according to Romans 6. Freedom is following God in his freedom. And God in his freedom, what does he do? Pursues all his own glory. So if we're going to be free, we're going to pursue his glory. Awesome stuff. So we say at the end of it, who's got Romans 11, 30 to 36? Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have been disobedient in order that by mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy in all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And amen. When it says there in verse 32 that God has consigned all to disobedience, do we understand that? That Jew and Gentile alike. Whether lowbrow Gentile, you know, rolling around in the muck, or a highbrow Gentile, you know, in the universities with a lot of degrees and all that. Or the Jews who think of themselves as much higher than all of that kind of humanity. All of them consigned to disobedience, right? The Gentiles consigned to disobedience because they didn't have the law. They were outside the law, the prophets. They were outside the promises. They were, they were ignorant pagans. I mean, they had nothing. Well, their own philosophers, the best their own philosophers could do was just bump up against something that Moses taught. And then they quickly drifted away. So they, they were without light, without revelation, without truth. The best they could do is come close to Moses. And now that Christ has come, they've rejected their Messiah. And now God has consigned the Jews to disobedience as well. Even though they were disobeying all along, right? God has consigned all to disobedience. We understand that. The whole human race. How is it then that he may have mercy on all? Has he had mercy on all? Prove that. How has he had mercy on all? Every breath. 
Thank you. Still alive. That's right. He is not guilty. The fact that if you have one thought that does not love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, or your neighbor as yourself, the fact that you have one thought errant in that direction and continue living is a demonstration of the mercy of God. Isn't it? What is the penalty for God's, for violating any of God's laws? The wages of sin is death. Death. Eternal death. So the fact that he has allowed us to live is his mercy. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom of God, right? So, one more section. How does all this translate then into our life as a church? As a local church, what does it look like? That's what Romans 12 and following are all about. How we live life as a local church. So who's got uh, Romans 12, 1 through 3? Okay. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And, and uh, verse 3 as well. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Okay, thank you. So, so we are in light of these mercies of God, chapters 1 through 11, everything we've gone through. In light of those mercies of God, we're to basically worship him. And <laughs> what do we do in worshiping him? Do we take lambs and you know, cut their throats over at Jerusalem and a now defunct, non-existent temple? No. Our bodies are that sacrifice. And the sacrifice is every single day, not dying, but living for him. So we, we present our bodies as a living sacrifice, living for him, Holy and acceptable, that is our, it says spiritual worship. The word could be translated logical. It's, a, it's your reasonable worship. This is what makes sense in light of all this other stuff. So don't be conformed to the world. Do, turn away from all that. And it says in verse 3, this is really important for the theme, some of the, something that's very thematic throughout Romans I want to point out here. But by the grace given to me, I say to you, to everyone, everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. Throughout, we see Paul correcting Jews in their Jewish haughtiness, and we see Paul correcting Gentiles in their Gentile haughtiness, especially in Romans 11, where the Gentiles think more highly of themselves because, oh, after all, you Jews crucified your own Messiah, bunch of idiots, look at you, and uh, we're grafted in, we're the better, we're the chosen people. No, watch out. Behold the kindness and severity of God. So... This, this is what he is doing in this letter. We'll come back to that uh, probably next week. So, next, uh, next passage, who's got uh, Romans 12, 19 and 21? Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Okay, so as a Christian community, as a Christian church, um, how are we to live? This, this reminds us of the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. This is the Sermon on the Mount. This is what uh, 
Larry said from the very beginning, loving God and loving one another. This is loving one another right here. And when we're offended, oh, that's okay. God is sovereign. He is just. We know he's just. We know he's righteous. He'll take care of all vengeance. He'll take care of every wrong. We can leave it in his hands. Again, God being glorified in our attitudes and how we treat people who offend us and treat people who do us wrong. Romans 13, 1 to 2. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Anybody know who was in power as emperor during this? Nero. Nero. He was a real charming young man, wasn't he? <laughs> We're going to get into that next week and see what are we being commanded to do as Christians under whom? We think Trump is bad? <laughs> He's a choir boy next to this guy, yeah. Nero. So, um, well, maybe not. Uh, we're <laughs> more revelations coming out, right? So Romans uh, 14, 7 to 12. This is uh, just real quick before just to set this up. So we're see, we see uh, how we're to interact even under persecution and suffering. We're even to go out of our way to submit to the governing authorities. They are ministers of righteousness. So we're to, we're to submit to them. Um, that's how we're to live in a pagan society. Um, and then we come into coming back inside the church. How are we to think about one another? How are we to think about other people who have differing opinions? Look at uh, Romans 14, 7 to 12. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Okay, once again, in, uh, demonstrating God is the judge. Once we come through the, uh, the judgment for our sins, we're still going to be held accountable as Christians to God uh, in how we think about one another, in how we reconcile or don't reconcile in the church. Back to Christy in her MABC. It's exactly what she's studying. She's finally going to learn how to reconcile with people. And we're waiting for her to do that. No. Um, but she's, that's exactly what she's studying, is, is getting down into those, those really difficult issues and exposing how people have held bitterness or anger or you know, and exposing that, helping people to repent of those sins and to walk in a, in a, in a new heart of righteousness and repentance and reconciliation. That's all this right here. Okay, go to Romans 15, 5 to 7. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with, uh, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. A lot of glory of God in that. Absolutely. And I love, I love here where it says, may the God of endurance and encouragement. 
what we've been hearing about law, righteousness, judgment, wrath, terrifying, and now look, look where we are in his favor. He is now that, that God who, is, who calls it here the God of endurance. Why is God the God of endurance? Because he never wears out, because he is eternal. There's no end to his endurance. There's no end to his perfections. And so he's the one who's supporting us and bolstering us and strengthening us. He's encouraging us. He's given us power and strength. He's granting us to live in harmony with one another in accord with Christ. And all of us, one voice, unified, in harmony, glorifying God, bringing glory to God. Okay? Uh, Romans 15, 14 to 16. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace of God given to me, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. There's a... Something that I, I so when I read through texts like that, where Paul says he is uh, thinks of himself in priestly service of the gospel, and he's trying to take a, an offering of these Gentile Christians for whom he labors and serves and tires and and suffers. He's trying to take this this uh, this group of Gentile Christians and give them to God as an offering. So it's like think about raising a we're done at 7.30, right? Okay, yeah, good. So um, I got time, is what I'm saying. Um, think, about, think about when you were, if you were a, a, an Israelite, and you're, you're, you know, three times a year, males go before God in Jerusalem, and you bring a sacrifice. And when you bring that sacrifice, it's a year-old lamb, right? So you've raised that lamb, you've fed it, you have invested into it. You've made sure there's no disease. You've made sure there are no predators. Uh, you're not selling it. Um, this is investment, 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 feeding, 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 caring, caring, caring. And then you bring this thing to the temple and slaughter it. And you offer it up to God. That, uh, rehearsing that all the time as a way of life and a pattern of life, I think is something that we as Gentiles, so far away from those events, just don't understand. And I really like this imagery of Paul Raising, 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 feeding, 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 caring, 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 shepherding, 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 conflict, persecution, suffering, keeping on at it, keeping on at it, keeping on at it. And he gives these people and hands them over to God. Not as a dead sacrifice, but as a living sacrifice. He offers them up to God. That sacrifice, sacrificial imagery, that's how we need to think about life. We need to think about life as anything I do, let it be burned up for the glory of God. May he get all, God, may he get all glory from every, every bit of my service, my words, my actions, my thoughts, my heart, people. That's how we need to think. I love that sacrifice imagery. And he sees himself as a priest. All of it for the glory of God. So last one, Romans 16, end of the chapter, uh, verses 25 to 27. Now to him is able to strengthen you according to the gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelations of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed and through the prophet's writings has been made, 
has been made known to all nations according to the commands of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, thank you. Um, Paul is, we're going to find out that he's writing to the Romans. Um, it, we're going to talk about purposes next time of what, what is the purpose, what's his main point, or what, what is he concerned to write to them about. Uh, one of the things that comes up is he wants to, he wants to see them. He's never been to Rome to this point. Uh, he wants to, to be them for mutual edification, that he can help them, bless them. He's blessing them through this letter, but he wants to bless them in person through his giftedness and uh, give to them and have them encourage him as well. And then he wants to be sent on to Spain. He wants to go all the way to Spain uh, to take the gospel there. And something that you can see here is what he's rejoicing that this glory of God isn't just being kept bottled up in Jerusalem. It's not being kept bottled up in Antioch, which is the church he was sent out from, or even in Asia Minor, or in Corinth and Athens, but it's going all the way to Rome, and it's going further, it's gonna extend out into Spain, basically covering Europe. He is thrilled about that, to bring about the obedience of faith, and he talks about to all the nations, to all the nations. He is so excited to see God glorified among people who don't know him at all. That's, that's the heart of a Christian right there. That's the heart that we need to have. And that's what this book is all about. It's about the glory, glory of God, the only wise God, to whom be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. This is the so-called practical section of Romans, Romans 12 through 16. But again, it's so filled with theology. Um, it's so filled with doctrine. And even the first part of Romans, Romans 1 through 11, doctrinal section, so filled with practical stuff. It's practical in nature. All of it, the whole book from cover to cover, attests to the glorifying, uh, God-glorifying uh, nature of this book um, of Christianity. Here, Romans 12 uh, through, seven, uh, through 16, this is all about God's uh, God-glorifying behavior in local churches and the local churches that to engage in. And all of it redounds to the glory of the only wise God. I hope you can see, just based on that little survey we've done, that the consistent and comprehensive testimony of Romans is that Christianity is about God. It's about glorifying God. It's about making Him known. The reason that I've taken time to highlight this, um, very simple point, is because, like you, I have, in my head, favorite passages in Romans. And I've got my head littered with little texts, cherry-picked from their contacts, and I use them for certain things that I, you know, some apologetic, strong stuff in Romans 1, and, and uh, justification theology in Romans 3 and 4. And I mean, I think we all do that. And we tend to chop Romans up. We don't see the entire flow and the thread and the theme that flows all the way through um, about this being God-glorifying. And one of, the, one of the ways I've seen that done is in this Romans being used as a roadmap to salvation. And to be sure, Romans teaches us the way of salvation. We need to see that salvation in light of a larger purpose of God to bring all glory to himself. I found... Um, 
several versions of the so-called Romans, Romans Road Online. And I uh, just want you to listen to this and think about how this roadmap subtly changes the emphasis that we have just seen in Romans. So it's, here's, quote, walking down the Romans road to salvation. Because of our sin, we are separated from God. And then it quotes Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. First step on the Romans road, right? What's the next step? The penalty for our sin is death. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. What's the next step? Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And the, 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 the headline there is the penalty for our sin was paid by Jesus Christ. Okay? So, so far we've got, because of our sin, we're separated from God. I would say because of our sin, there's a whole lot more wrong than separation, but at least that, it's true. The penalty for our sin is death, true. The penalty for our sin was paid by Jesus Christ, if you believe. Next one, if we repent of our sin, then confess and trust Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we will be saved from our sins. And then these two verses, Romans 10, 13, uh, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Romans 10, 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved for with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. I will grant that that is a better gospel presentation than many that I have seen. Okay, But having gained a fuller exposure as we have in this hour to the message of Romans, what does that sound like to the average American? That Romans road. That it's all about me. Yeah. <clears throat> then the problem is fixed, so don't worry about it. Yeah, the problem's fixed. Once you kind of walk through these steps, boom. Then what more need do I have of Romans, really? I've walked the road. Bruce, you're going to say something? Uh, she said the same thing I did. Okay. Yeah, Wes? My effort. Oh, my effort. Interesting. Yeah, I guess you could see that in calls and confesses. Believe in your heart, that's there, but you might think the effort is in that prayer. In fact, at the end of this presentation on that website, it has a prayer you can pray, and then you're good. You know, it's, you're a Christian. Yeah. There's no lordship. Um, he, well, yeah, he did he say, confess, confess and trust Jesus as Lord and Savior. Yeah, right. So that, that, yeah. there's that element mentioned. He doesn't unpack anything. You might see him kind of out there in a distance as a Lord, but what does that mean? Yeah. None of these terms have really definition to them, which in context in Romans, a lot of definition. As we boil down to what the general theme was, it's about God. Mm -hmm. And verses where we see it's more about me, but really it's about God and his sovereign purpose. Right, right. Christy? That's what I was going to say. That he just—it's just a plucking out of all the man-centered kind of verses <clears throat> about us, and right. it doesn't give you the context, which is God. Yeah, and, and I would say to to be fair, I, I'm not—you know—I think that there. 
Being well, it's like what we talked about Sunday night. They're being minimalistic. They're minimalizing the gospel down to these kind of something I can package and easily memorize and take door to door or, you know, hit on a campus or on a street corner or whatever. And if I have this script in my head, I can be faithful and they can get saved and the deal's done. That's kind of how we've tended to think about evangelism. When evangelism really, according to the Apostle Paul, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. He was, he was wrestling, he was talking, he was preaching. There was, a, there was an argument being made. There's a lot of interaction going on. Nick? I was just thinking it's kind of, to the world it would kind of sound like a religious version of psychology. Like it, it's about fixing me and my problems, but religiously. Mm -hmm. And I think the difference between that and what you just unpacked about God's glory is that with God's glory, if you start with that, kind of like in the presuppositional approach, you elevate God and demote the sinner, and they start out with a humble view of themselves right. and a recognition of how far they fall short. Yeah, yeah, well said. That's right. Yeah. Chuck? Uh, it doesn't seem to, well, it seems kind of incomplete. I mean, I've used the Romans or Rome, not probably a lot of folks around here have used that, hmm. and it has its merits. It's based on what you took us through in all the scriptures, giving us that larger, larger perspective. The life afterwards, uh, and this may be getting into discipleship versus salvation, but but it's the idea of, of uh, church life. Yeah, church life. You know, that's completely missing from that. But you know, that perspective that you've given us isn't quite there because it's not designed to be there. Probably just. It's yeah. that nutshell thing. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So the, that, that presentation, and you know, we could add a number of presentations to that, just sounds like a way to get, some, get out of some kind of trouble that you're in. You know, um, sin's bad or something, and I need to not, I gotta get out of this fix I'm in. Um, but the case for the prosecution against us in that, presentation is pretty brief. <laughs> Very hard to feel much conviction from that presentation. Um, you kind of accept the fact that you're a sinner in a very minimalistic, flippant way. And, uh, and there's just not a whole lot to, to really be troubled over. Unless you really have a good background that can interpret all those terms. Um, but it sounds like a way to get us out of some kind of trouble and get us salvation. And according to the presentation, the verses are cherry-picked from their context. And Christianity here sounds like it's all about saving me, which is kind of what Gary said, that if you ask a, a run-of-the-mill evangelical, that's what they think Christianity is about. It's about me getting to heaven. It's about me being saved. It's about me, me, me. I mean, fill it with whatever religious, righteous terms you want to. Still, me is at the center of a lot of what people think. And... Um, so we need to realize that the message of Romans is all about the glory of God. It's all about God's righteousness in all of his ways. Even in our salvation, as precious as that is to us, it is an outworking of divine righteousness, and it's intended to draw wisdom to the, or draw attention to the wisdom and the glory of God. So whether it's in the condemnation of guilty sinners or in the salvation and sanctification of redeemed sinners, whether it's in the, the purposes of God revealed in his eternal decree, or in the providential outworking of that decree in consigning all under disobedience, first the Gentiles and then the Jews, and then most immediately 
whether it's for the churches in Rome and the purposes of church unity through love and service, through submission and sanctification, all of that going on in local church life, the whole of Romans reveals that Christianity is God-centered, not man-centered. It's about the glory of God. And we find glory only if we are found in Christ. That's what Romans is about. I just wanted to, with this first week, um, set that as a baseline. We're talking about Romans next week and getting into the details of it. Got all kinds of stuff here to ask. I'll just ask you real quick since I've got a couple of minutes and I can't get through this packet of material. Um, uh, anybody know which apostle planted the church in Rome? Peter. Peter. Anybody want to propose a different apostle? Wasn't it, wasn't it um, uh, those friend, those, the couple that was friends of Paul? I can't remember the oh, name. Paul and Priscilla. Priscilla and Priscilla? Were they apostles? No. That's my boy right there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Starting to add more apostles. Got to talk to him. 14, weren't they? Indirectly, Paul, I guess. Is it John? So Paul through apostolic emissaries. Yeah. Oh, getting a little more tricky with your answer. <laughs> Try to dig yourself out of a hole. Exactly. No, um, actually, there's not. It is commonly thought that Peter was the. Uh, uh, well, commonly, mistakenly thought that Peter was the the apostle who planted the church in Rome. It was thought that maybe he went to Rome prior to, but he's in, he is in Jerusalem in AD 49, and he's going to be there for a while. He's going to be there because that's the Jerusalem Council, AD 50, and he's going to be there for quite some time. He did not make it to Rome, and we can't find really any evidence of that. But the Roman Catholic Church would love us to think that Peter got there, planted, so. That's where he was crucified upside down, was in Rome. so the tradition, there's a very strong tradition, and we do believe that both Peter and Paul martyred in Rome, but that says nothing about the founding of the church in Rome. Which is interesting, when you think about a significant city like Rome, and no apostolic planting or founding of the church there. In God's providence, he wanted to make sure his success of his gospel was not tied to imperial wealth or power. That's how I look at that in his providence, just wisely bypassed Rome and let that church be planted by slaves and Jews who, well, we'll talk about that. Jews are fleeing because of the persecution. Yeah. And then Paul did make it there, but he made it there as a prisoner of Rome. Mm. That was his first visit. Yeah. House arrest. Isn't that cool? Yeah. Pretty good stuff. And, and there's so much good stuff to get to. If you want to stay till 9, we can do that. I should probably close in prayer since Lori's laughing at me. <coughs> Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the survey we've gotten in the book of Romans. And, and we are um, so incredibly humbled before your grace and mercy. There, there is no reason um, in and of ourselves that you would uh, find us acceptable, attractive, Romans 5 says that it was while we were yet sinners that Christ died for us. It's why we were um, in rebellion to you as enemies. We were actually pointing the guns in your direction in our rebellion. And when we were the furthest from you, you sent Christ to rescue us. All of this redounds to your glory. Um, as we see your incredible wisdom in the 
the profundity of the gospel, that you can remain holy and just and righteous and grant us righteousness, um, having forgiven all of our sin in the propitiatory sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. You satisfied your own wrath, sending your infinite son to absorb your infinite wrath against our sin. And now you've given us infinite mercy. Thank you, Father, for your kindness to us in Christ. Thank you for choosing us from before the foundation of the world. Um, we're humbled before you and just ask that you would help us to, to live in light of these great mercies. We would present our bodies to you as living sacrifices. Thank you for what we've learned, and I pray that this would uh, cause us great rejoicing and take us through the rest of the week. In Jesus' name, amen.